what if businesses really could create amazing products and services? What if they really had a strong sense of culture? What if they really made their customer experience something exceptional? What if they did want to contribute to society and the planet? And we wanted to work with those kind of companies. Welcome to the My Future Business Show, where we get you in front of your best audience and keep you there. Not only are we interviewing the biggest names in business to help you become even more successful, we're inviting you to book your spot on the show to help you grow your business. So at the end of the call, make sure you fill in the interview application form at myfuturebusiness.com forward slash interviews. Hello and welcome back to the My Future Business Show. It's Rick Nusky here. I'm your host. It's such a wonderful treat to have you with us. If you're, uh, no matter where you are in the world, should I say you're in for a treat today, especially if you're keen on marketing. There's always different ways to, uh, I guess, skin a cat, for lack of better ways to put it. But today we're going to be talking uh, about a particular way with the founder, CEO, and chief rooster at the award-winning marketing agency called Rooster Punk. He's also the author of Humanizing B2B, Mr. Paul Cash. Welcome to the show, Paul. Yeah, good morning, Rick. Uh, great to be part of uh, the show. Thank you very much again for joining me. Now, you're in London, is that correct? We're in sunny London. Let's get it right. Let's put a prefix sunny on London, London for a change. Sunny yeah, London. well, <laughs> that's the exception, not the rule, isn't it? Exactly. So I think we're in for a bit of a heat wave this weekend. So what, you're going to hit tw- get very excited. You're going to hit 20? <laughs> we're going to hit maybe even 30. You oh, <laughs> goodness. You never know. Wow. Exactly. Tank tops on and everything. Now, is, uh, this is global warming. Yeah. Uh, yes, at its finest. Now, has London been home for you forever or did you move there? Or Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I'm a boy from the northwest of England. So I was born in the kind of the Liverpool region. I'm an Everton fan, not a Liverpool fan for my sins. So I've suffered over the last 25, 30 years for sure. Um, But I kind of uh, went to university in Yorkshire and like most people made my way down to London at the beginning of my career because that's really where the opportunities have been. And I've stayed down here. So I'm an adopted son of the South. Very good. Tell us a little bit about uh, the pandemic. Is it affecting you guys the way it is affecting others at the moment or is it backing off? Tell us a little bit about that. No, I think um, retrospectively, the pandemic has been an amazing thing for business to business Mm. as a category. Mm. Obviously, for me, uh, many people have suffered and families have suffered and, uh, you know, companies that are in travel and tourism and things like that. But generally, you know, the majority of B2B, I say the majority of the big chunk of it is technology. Mm -hmm. And obviously, as businesses race to digitize and do all those kind of things. Technology as a category has really benefited. And so as a B2B agency, you know, like most good agencies, we've grown through the pandemic, which has been a nice thing. And um, the thing that we talk about humanizing B2B, it also sometimes requires people to have a bit of a moment to stop and think and recalibrate. Mm -hmm. And that new type of thinking is definitely accelerated through COVID as well. So it's been a good period. Good period. That's great. Now, talking about humanizing, not only do we need to obviously get that, uh, I guess, more personal touch in business, but what about yourself? What about your team? Do you find do you find that you have more time uh, or at least some time to spend doing the things you enjoy away from the business time to time? Yeah, it's obviously, it's been a huge challenge how companies manage that traditional office environment to a remote environment to a hybrid environment. We're no different in terms of we've experimented with lots of things, tried different things. Mm. Obviously, culture is incredibly important to every business, but 
you know, small businesses have a stronger bond. There is definitely more of a family connection. And we've really tried to lean into that. Um, so it was great once we're allowed to get back out and do some socials and you yep, know, yep. express people's diversity. We've got people from Vietnam. We've got people from uh, the Caribbean and the agency. So we give them opportunity to take us out into London to show us the best of what, you know, Vietnamese restaurants have and Vietnamese culture and all the Caribbean culture. So it's always quite good to dip into people's um, uh, lifestyle and culture from a, from a different point of view. So it's been good. So do you uh, enjoy movies? What do you what do you watch? Do you watch anything? I'm a movie buff, I've got to admit. Oh, yeah. um, so uh, <laughs> just took my boys to watch the new Top Gun films. I've got two teenagers and uh, obviously Top Gun was a great film for me when I was in my mid-teens. And so I was interested to see how they would uh, get on with it. And um, when, when the movie finished, I said to my eldest boy, who's 15, wow, do you want to be a fighter pilot now? Because obviously there was a huge uh, increase in applications to be uh, for the Navy after the, the first movie. Oh, really? And he goes, no, no, that. I want to be an actor. Oh. Went, okay. Because he saw that what an amazing thing to have all these specialist skills and to be trained to, you know, be in the cockpit of a fighter jet and all the things they have to do. So I just thought it was an interesting take. But uh, yeah, wow. yeah, big movie buff. Yeah, no, thank you very much. I mean, this gives some great context to you as a business owner and a founder. And there are a lot of people on this show who get a lot of value out of learning about the people behind the business. Because I think in many respects, um, Paul, there's fundamentals that don't change in business. But what I have noticed over the years is that the uniqueness of the leadership always changes. So um, on that, I'm wondering, when you uh, started to form this wonderful organization of yours, who did you look to? Did you have any mentors and people that you looked to for, uh, I guess, inspiration? Do you know, it's a really good question. And when I try to answer that honestly, the mm -hmm. answer is no. Mm -hmm. um, I think when I started my career, I set up my first business when I was 24, 25 years old. That's back in the early 90s. Yep. The sense of mentorship and this kind of bear hug of services that you get now if you're a startup entrepreneur just didn't exist. Doesn't happen, does it? And I obviously just cracked on like most business owners do back in the day and you learn from your mistakes and maybe there's the odd person you speak to, but you kind of just get on with it and, yep. and do it yourself. And um, obviously I, I read a lot of books, so I take my inspiration from from books more so than necessarily the people because the content within the book. Yep. Um, but... I kind of sometimes find it difficult or think it must be difficult for these young entrepreneurs who need to have their own mind and own identity and personality, yet they've got this massive network of people around them telling them what they should be doing. Mm. And it must be so hard to just cherry pick the right information, but still have your own sense of identity that goes with it all. So I'm kind of a big fan of you've got to do it yourself. Yep, yep. Do you mean a mentorship? But I think there's a definitely a a tipping point where there's too much mentorship, too much advice, too much guidance, um, and you've got to find your own direction. And, and I think that's a really hard thing to do. But um, I, when I set up Rooster Punk, there was a, a business partner I brought on board called James Trezona, who we'd worked together in my previous agency, and I'd always rated him. And so I wanted to you know, have a partnership. And so uh, I reached out to him to say, look, let's do this together. So. If I can ask you a little bit about him later on in terms of his assistance with the book, um, that would be great. Now, I, I'd love to also learn about, um, I guess, the omnipresence of risk and how you managed um, the, both the upside and the downsides to risk. Does, was it something that you struggled with? Because I know a lot of people do. 
You mean risk in terms of risk a exposure from a business exposure perspective, financial risk, um, reputation risk, all those types of things. What what's your take on risk? Yeah, so I'm a fairly optimistic business owner and mm. leader, and from a very early age when I had my businesses, I was incredibly lucky to have success straight out the gate. And so when you have success at a very young age, you think this is going to last forever. <laughs> and so therefore your, your sense of risk is tempered by your naivety. Yeah. Okay. And so we have a runaway successful business, you know, turning over $10 million in the space of four years, 100 plus people, yep. couldn't put a foot wrong. Yep. And then we had the dot-com bubble crash of 2002. Mm -hmm. And... I'd never seen a recession, didn't really know what it was about. You read books and it's like, oh, you manage your way through it, spend money when no one else is spending money and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we must have made every single mistake you could have made as business owners during that period of time. Yep. Uh, and it was a huge learning curve. It was like, almost like in a 10-year period, it was five years of not knowing how to run a business and it being a runaway success and then five years of how to run a business yeah. in a market that was incredibly tough. And I've made, like any entrepreneur, I've made so many mistakes along the way. Obviously, I think we call them learnings now, but whatever <laughs> you want to call them. But that's the journey, right? Yep, it's, yep. You know, you're very fortunate in life if you manage to get away unscathed. And I think it definitely is the, the journey and the ups and the downs that make the whole thing worthwhile when you look back. Obviously, sometimes you wish that some of those things might not have happened, <laughs> <Didn't> but happen. <laughs> they are character building for all those right reasons. And I wouldn't change any of it, to be honest with you. I've lost, I've made millions and lost millions lost along millions. the way. Now, you Paul, know, so. I remember as a, I guess, a teenager, my first ever entrepreneurial experience was actually washing cars. Do you recall yours? Oh, I had so many jobs. I was, um, <laughs> I was from a typical middle-class family, yep. uh, four siblings. My mum was a full-time mum, and my dad was his first generation of professional workers mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of an office job. Yep. And so we never lacked for anything, but there was never any spare money around for nice things. We never went on holidays and stuff like that. So from a very early age, if I wanted to buy myself like a, you know, a graphite tennis racket or some new goalie gloves or whatever it was, I had to fund it myself. Yep. So I did paper rounds, I walked dogs, I lived in Scotland, they have something called the Tatty Holiday, so a tatty is a potato, yep. so you were a farmer would you know, pay you to, uh, in October to pick potatoes out of a field, yep. in the summer you had strawberry picking, um, I've worked in supermarkets, packing potatoes, I've worked in pot washing in restaurants, I've worked behind the bar, waiting <laughs> on, I literally, any job I could have, you know, pre-18, I did. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't afraid of hard work. You know, you want to, you want to buy these nice things, then you've you got to find a way to it. do it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, so I empathise with that. Yeah, for sure. I just wonder if we can. I guess that's a nice dovetail into um, the importance of mindset because you have to have a certain way of thinking. You have to connect the dots in many ways, don't you? If I want, um, if I want this outcome, I've got to do this input. I've got to do some work. How has that, um, you know, placed you as a as a founder of an organisation? This mindset. Yeah, so I think, you know, I grew up definitely in a period where if you want to make it, you know, you've really got to work hard for it. Nothing yeah. is ever given to you. Um, and somebody gave me a great little piece of advice. He says, you know, you're, you earn what you're worth. Yep. 
Okay, so there's no point you thinking I should be earning more money. Yeah, <laughs> you're worth what you get paid. So go and create it for yeah. yourself and don't moan and bitch about it. Do you know what I mean? If you want to earn half a million pounds a year, then create the environment that lets you do that you do and that. work hard to go and achieve it. But don't expect it. Um, and so I've always, you know, had a strong work ethic, but more importantly, I've always had an incredible self-belief in who I am as an individual, as a person, and that as long as I do the right things and stay true to who I am, yep. everything else will work out. And obviously there's place. dips and troughs and stuff like that, but you know, I have a high set of standards. I think that's really important as a business leader to lead from the front to know what good and bad looks like and be mm-hmm. articulate in how you express that. Um, like most people, I kind of had ups and downs in terms of how to recruit people along the way, you know, the good people, the bad people. But I've always tried to innovate for good or bad. Sometimes it's easier to make money by just trying to be better at what everybody else is doing. Um, and I've always kind of gone to the side of business, which is what are very few people doing and how can I do that better? Yeah. And while that might be emotionally rewarding, it is also a very difficult commercial place to be unless you catch a tornado market or a, a sector that catches fire and mm-hmm. you know you can be part of that. Yep. Um, so it's right. all a learning curve. Right sure. place, right time. Now, I think about um, something that Elon Musk um, w- uh, was quoted as saying is that you don't necessarily need, you're talking about recruitment just momentarily a little while ago, and I think to myself this, this quote that he was um, quoted as saying is that you don't necessarily need a degree or anything like that to be, um, you know, the top of the tree, the best of the best. What do you t- what do you think about that? Do you? Th- you, know, you it's, a, I mean, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's yeah. a tricky one because if I'm talking to my children, <laughs> you know, of <laughs> course I want them to I want them to be able to get the best educational background they mm. can because I think it puts them in good stead for a future. Yeah. Is it? the absolute guarantee of success in an entrepreneurial or a commercial environment? No. No. But depending on the environment you go into, you know, if you go into blue chip corporates or, uh, you know, your, your background and your pedigree is going to move you forward. And to a certain extent, if you haven't got a master's degree, you might be overlooked for certain jobs. Mm-hmm. But if you want to work for yourself and go into a much more, you know, environment, uh, entrepreneurial environment, then it's all about who you are at the end of the day. But um, I, Education is hugely important. I think yep. you know you want to push as far as you can, potentially. And uh, let's face it, it's not just the education piece. For most young people, eighteen to do a three or four year degree, it really is a lesson in life mm. and being independent and living and meeting new people and just maturing to to that point where you maybe do know what you want to do because you know most eighteen year olds don't. Let's face it. Yeah, it's uh, it's those uh, formative years, those networking yeah, years, and 100%. all that sort of stuff. Now, I'm loving this uh, conversation, Paul, and you and I touched on the fact that you love movies, as do I. I'm a Marvel fan. I always think to myself, I love their superpowers, and I'm thinking to myself, well, what does a founder of a business, of a business like Rooster Punk um, profess to be the best at? What's, what's your one superpower, if you could call it that? What do you as an individual or as a business? As, as you as an individual, what's the one thing you think you do the best? So... <laughs> I say this in the, in the nicest possible way. I've learned <laughs> through my career mm. that I have the likability factor. All right. Yep. So I'm the face of the agency. I'm the new biz guy. I'm the one out there pressing flesh, standing on podiums, speaking, doing podcasts. And yep. you learn through time whether in that kind of, let's face it, it's a sales environment. 
yes, whether is. or not those kind of interpersonal skills and all the nonverbal communication and what you say actually creates that kind of likability. And obviously, people buy from people. That's the, the most important trait in business. And so I've tried to stay true to that and, yep. and lean into that likability factor, not shy away from it, try to put myself out there in you know, difficult situations like public speaking, and you know, which is not a natural thing to do, but over time you... You, you get better at get it, better at it um, yeah. and just try to leverage that, that well, not really it's a superpower, but it's that's, definitely that's something skill. I have that I over-index on that maybe other people don't, but there's obviously lots of likable people out there. Yeah, no, look, I'm really appreciating the feedback and the, the willingness to share your insights. It does mean a great deal to me as well as our audience. Now, that's a, probably a really good um, segue into Rooster Punk. Where did it come from? Why did you choose the name Rooster Punk, and what products and services do you provide? Yeah, so Rooster Punk is my third agency in a 30-year career. So every decade, roughly speaking, I've kind of found a new idea that I think was relevant for that marketplace and set up an agency. Mm -hmm. So Rooster Punk was set up about eight, nine years ago, and it was after the global recession meltdown of 2008. And yep. we wanted to build an agency that had a really strong business as a force for good uh, ideology behind it. And what I mean by that is that obviously this kind of profit capitalist model, screw everybody over, make mm -hmm. our big products and services, mm -hmm. um, that really got us into trouble in 2008. We wanted to say, no, what, what if businesses really could create amazing products and services? What if they really had a strong sense of culture? What if they really made their customer experience something exceptional? You know, what if they did want to contribute to society and the planet? Yep. Couldn't those kind of companies succeed in this post-world, in this post-2008 era? And we wanted to work with those kind of companies. So the rooster is the Christian symbol for warding off evil, which is why you see it on top of a church spire. Uh -huh. So the rooster represents the force for good. Yep. And the punk, because that way of thinking was, and still is, quite anti-establishment at the time. And so we smashed the rooster and the punk together and the dot-com was free. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. I was actually reviewing your website and you have some amazing imagery. I'm wondering how important the use of imagery is with branding and your brand in particular. Yeah, so again, one of the things I've learned through through my career is I have what I would call a creative soul. So yep. I love creativity. I love the output of creativity. I love great design. I love great advertising. It absorbs me. I look at it. It fascinates me, all that kind of stuff. So yep. obviously the visual side of a brand and the, um, the language side of a brand are really important to me and how you create attitude and tone and likability yep. um, through, through branding. And that's what we do as an agency. You know, that's the... The, the thing that's really changed in the last few years that B2B has been in this kind of performance era for the past 10 to 15 years, the role of automation and digitization and technology and uh, the chasing of leads and all that kind of stuff. And we're now seeing for the first time ever the role of brand yep. and how important brand is moving forward. And, you know, this era of brand and demand rather than it just being demand yep. is upon us. And that's mm -hmm. an exciting time. And so we sit in this kind of space, in this kind of brand and demand space as an agency. And so we work with VC-funded scale-up businesses on their kind of positioning, on their brand identity, their values, yep. their purpose, mission, vision. And then we also work with large blue chips like Capgemini on kind of strategic campaigns and thought leadership. 
exercises. So, yeah, all with yeah. a kind of a humanizing ethos. It's all happening, isn't it? Now, I, I, I sit here and I think to myself, um, is Rooster Punk product centric or people centric? I think I know the answer, but I'd love for you to talk to that if you could. Yeah, so obviously we are 100 people centric. So when, when we wrote the book, Humanizing B2B, which we published last year, there are five key principles that we talk about, about what humanizing is about. Mm-hmm. And the first of those principles is it's about people, not products. So one of the things that anybody who's worked in B2B will know for the past 30 years is the product's been the hero or the solution or the service. And now we started to see, no, no, the audiences are the most important. So whether that's employees or customers or partners, you know, there's been a real kind of um, switch in, in terms of focus. So um, that is absolutely the heart of the heart of it. Yeah, of B2B humanizing you. I, I just have to stop and say thank you for a copy of the book Humanizing B2B. It was an amazing read. I found myself engrossed in the content and it flowed just very nicely and uh, quite an in-depth book, but easy to read even for me. Now, um, did you find it challenging to read it or did it flow for you to write this book? And uh, you had some help from James. Tell us about his involvement. Yeah, so... We didn't want to write an intellectual book. Yeah. And I mean that in terms of we wanted to democratize this humanizing B2B thinking to early graduates who are just starting off on some kind of digital marketing journey yeah. as much as a kind of a CEO of a large enterprise. And so we wanted to write it in such a way that it felt accessible and interesting, but at the same time wasn't like a really complicated read you can probably get through it in five or six hours yep. and you know the pages do do turn so that was a specific intent at the beginning and we tried to write it in that kind of style um i kind of took the lead on it in terms of um getting all the words down and james was kind of my partner in terms of editing looking at all that kind of stuff before we then kind of took it to the publisher Excellent. Now, tell me a little bit about the psychology of marketing and how it plays a part inside of your book in terms of trust. How, how important is trust in a people-based market? Yeah, so again, I have a, I have a bit of an issue with the word trust mm-hmm. um, because, again, it's a word that's been banded around for a long time, both in business to consumer and business to business markets. Yep. You know, we need to be the trusted advisor. We need to be the trusted brand. Yeah. But if Trust is a bit like saying, oh, I want to be the coolest brand in the sector. Mm. Do you know, you, you, by association, you can't define yourself as being cool. Trustworthy. Yeah. <laughs> being cool is what your brand creates in terms yep. of how your customers feel about you. Yep. So I think that there's two sides to, the, to this trust coin. And the other side of it is what I call likability. Yeah. Okay. So to me, the the outcome of the branding process is to create likability okay people want to work with likable people that's true but people also want to work with likable brands so in the absence of any salespeople or any um interaction with a human being your website your brand your content your videos have to do that likability job okay and to me the likability piece is the piece that sits before trust Right. But they're both sides of the same coin. So you need to engineer likability, which massively influences trust, yep. which then leads to some kind of sales outcome. I love that breakdown because it you know, puts it in a prioritized sort of hierarchical 
um, thing rather than just you know blanket this is us trust us this is what we do now I, I and I think to myself a lot of business owners would would approach you going well look we're used to performance metrics um, if that be the case how are you going to help us measure whether or not what you're doing for us is making a difference what's your performance yeah. metrics if that's the case so again here's another interesting challenge we all have which is as we move towards brand, mm. everybody is still trying to judge brand on the same KPIs and performance metrics as they're trying to judge demand. Uh. And I just think it's a false economy. You yeah. know, we've all kind of read the bit and feel the long and the short of it, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. So from my point of view, when I think about brand, I don't think of it as a sales game to be won or lost. I think of it more as a popularity contest so how can you create the most popular brand in your category that's what people need to be thinking about that kind of fame metric and if you create the most popular and likable brand you will have the sales that go with it because popularity is obviously uh, about market share yeah um, yeah so I try to link it more towards that which is think of think of brand as a popularity contest don't uh, think of it as a sales game. Yes, yes. Thank you very much for sharing. I mean, demand is a sales game, yeah, for sure. But absolutely. brand is a popularity contest. Completely different way of thinking about it, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, I, I sit here and I think to myself, should we be focused on building real relationships, even in transactional type industries, if we are people-based and people-focused? Is there a room to build relationships even in those transactional environments? Yeah, I, you know, Again, without the specifics of what that transaction environment is, is there's yeah. often a lot of professional and personal selling that goes into something before that transaction is done. Yeah. Um, so, again, there are, I'm sure, lots of competition out there who are trying to get ahead of whoever's already the incumbent in that transactional relationship, and they're mm -hmm. probably pressing the flesh and doing whatever personal selling techniques, whether it's hospitality, whether it's sales calls, whatever, to try and influence that buyer to move from the incumbent to them. So yeah. I think, you know, the deeper those emotional connections that a company has, the stronger it makes that transactional sale at the end of it. Paul, I was um, looking at uh, language before inside of the book and that you talk about the three languages. And, I, and I, I remember being told by somebody, if you need to talk differently with a, uh, like say, a, a technician as opposed to a, a founder, what do you do? What sort of work and what do you suggest in terms of the three languages that B2B marketers need to master? Yeah, so just for anybody listening in, we have this thing we call the golden triangle mm -hmm. um, at the base of the triangle is what we call the the language of products and so that really is the language that every person who works in the company needs to know they need to know what the company does what the product does the speeds and feeds the functionality the benefits and for mostly b2b has lived on that product language for decades and they've communicated that way but what we've seen in recent years is a movement up to the middle part of the triangle, which we call the language of the customer. Yep. So this is now, you know, what do they need? What are their wants? What are their aspirations? What are their challenges? It's much more of a kind of a, um, a personalized kind of space. And yet the top of the triangle, the bit we talk about, which is the language of emotion, which is really how you need to engage those people in order to be able to, you know, get a sale, whatever else like that. Um, and really that language of emotion is, is the heartland of B2B. So whether you're a technician or whether you're a founder, people buy on emotion 
and they justify with fact. That's really important. They buy an emotion and they'll justify with fact. And so it doesn't really matter on who the audience is. Um, that's the way that we buy. And so, yes, obviously, you need to be mindful about how you engage that technical audience and what does emotion mean in that context vis-a-vis -vis what does emotion mean when talking to a founder. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, but the, the, the way to obviously connect is through emotion. One of the things that I gleaned from the book, Paul, was that um, B2B products are generally, not always, but generally more technical in nature. And, and then I think to myself, well, we also talked about how we enjoy movies, which are based on storytelling. Is there a place for storytelling and how would it be different in a B2B environment? Yeah, well, there's, um, so I think, you know, we've seen this interest in storytelling within business to business environments for the first time really over the last decade mm -hmm. storytelling has been a key component of how big global ad agencies have entertained us in those 30 second tv spots for many many years but because b2b has never had tv media as a tool in the toolbox it's only been in recent times through video content that sits on youtube that we've really started to see and understand the power of story when it's there with voiceovers and characters and music and yep. that kind of multi-sensory yep. way to to view or interpret a brand mm -hmm. so that's been really exciting and i think the challenge has been most b2b companies are inherently compl complex from an internal point of view with lots of different people lots of different products and overlap and politics and we kind of go in there and the biggest challenge i'm sure most agencies face is just to untangle the spaghetti do you mean to kind <laughs> yeah. of just help them have clarity of message and so having what we call an organizing story that sits at the heart of the brand so that when anybody goes onto a website they get an instant sense of who that company is are they relevant to me yeah. and is there a kind of an emotional connection because let's face it 90 percent of b2b websites you go to you have to literally go around 10 pages just trying to work out what are they saying? What, what are what they do giving they do? me? And yeah. it's like they just give you so much verbiage and jargon and text <laughs> and without actually <laughs> nailing it, what they do. Yeah. And um, it's, that can be incredibly frustrating for a buyer or a decision maker. So just having a simple, articulate story to tell that just helps position who you are and what you do is, is, is hugely important. Absolutely. Again, loving this call. Uh, as I was reading through the book, Paul, um, I really enjoyed the, the psychology of selling component where we're generating good feelings that end up in dopamine and serotonin, oxytocin. And yeah. um, who, who did all this study? Where did all this knowledge come from? Is it because of your university background or was it, how did that come about? I mean, there's so much detail in this book. It's amazing. Yeah, so I think, you know, um, in B2B over the last decade, there's been a lot of intelligent people who've come in with some new thinking and new ideas, whether it's behavioral science, whether it's um, neuroscience. Yep. And we've all picked up on what consumer marketing has been talking about for, for many, many years, which is the idea that actually the human body, we're just a bunch of neurotransmitters, yeah? The, yep, whether yep. it's oxytocin, whether it's dopamine, whether it's serotonin, as you say, and those neurotransmitters dictate heavily our decisions that we make so 
oxytocin, as you said, is known as the cuddle hormone. It's yep. present when people have intimacy, you know, in sex, for instance. Yep. Yep. But it's also heavily present when a mother is pregnant with her child. And oxytocin is all about building trust and relationships. And we've noticed through experiments that when somebody is engaged in a story, it triggers higher levels of oxytocin uh, in their brain. Yep. And so therefore, oxytocin has been linked to good storytelling, which builds trust. So yes. there's a lot of this, which then goes back to primitive man and how stories were told as the vehicle for communication back in the day and how people built trust in groups and societies based on storytelling. So this is all kind of connected back connected. to the, you know, yes. the, the, the origins of mankind, as it were. But um, yeah, there's some fascinating studies out there that, that prove all this stuff works. But there's one thing, having the intellectual theory and all this input and stimuli, it's harder, obviously, to articulate and put articulate. into practice and deliver against it. Well, you can only imagine uh, somebody fresh off the street, they've got a great idea, they're starting to get some traction, and yet they have no idea, no conceptual understanding even of what we've just talked about. They need people like Rooster Punk. But I also think to myself, because this is such a, I wouldn't say different, but unique uh, approach to marketing, you know, that people-focused approach, how can someone take this information to their founders or the, the decision makers within their organization and convince them that this approach is the right one for their business? Yeah, so I think the last chapter of the book, we've tried to put in all the data yeah. and all the great research that's come from Binnington Field, from the LinkedIn Institute, the B2B LinkedIn Institute, the Eringer Bass Institute, all these kind of think tanks that have been brilliant are really trying to help shape modern thinking in B2B. Um, and that kind of stuff needs to go in front of, you know, CEOs because it does help alter people's perception of what brand is, what yep. is the challenge of B2B marketing. And I think in a wider macro environment, lots of founders and CEOs are mindful that things have changed and that they need to experiment more and they need to change and reposition and build modern brands for this post covid world that we're all living in so you're seeing that receptivity increase from from high levels we saw it definitely over the last 18 months through the pandemic obviously uh, there's been course. a slight shift at the moment obviously with rising inflation and war in europe and yep. um the kind of uh, the the meltdown in the uh, the tech stocks and shares and i think everybody is bracing themselves for uh, a technical recession towards yep. the end of this year and beginning of next year. So yep. um, how that's going to play out in terms of the way people think about investment in brand or demand or, or whatever. So that's a, a story that will Another unveil topic. itself over the next 12 months. This has been an incredible call, Paul. We've you know put so much, condensed so much in such a short amount of time. We're really only skimming the surface of all the things we could possibly talk about, and I very much appreciate it, as does the My Future Business audience. Now, importantly, um, if I want to get the book, where am I going to send people? And if they want to connect with you and they want to start working with you, where are they going to go and what is the process? Yeah, so the book's available on Amazon and all other kind of online bookstores. We've just launched the audio version of the book, so that's Fantastic. now available as well. So yep. I'm a huge Audible fan these days, so oh, yeah. um, that would appeal to me, uh, probably more so than the printed version. <laughs> yep. um, so, yeah, just put Humanizing B2B into Google. There's also yep. a humanizingb2b.com website with some other bits and pieces on there. And then, obviously... Anybody can connect with me on LinkedIn, Paul Cash, or the agency website is roosterpunk.com. 
there you go. Easy peasy, as they say. Now, there if you, you want to uh, connect with Paul and his wonderful team, um, make sure you look at the link roosterpunk.com. No matter where you see this call, you will definitely find the links back to uh, Paul. And if you want that book, I'll be putting a link straight to Amazon to get that as well. And in closing out this fantastic call, Paul, thank you so very much for joining me on the My Future Business Show today. Rick, you're a legend. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the call, then make sure to subscribe, leave a comment, share us with your friends, and book your spot on the show at myfuturebusiness.com forward slash interviews. And if you're looking for solutions that will help grow your business, then visit myfuturebusiness.com forward slash shop.